Hey everybody, this is DJ Q for the Golf News Net Radio Network. We now return you to Jay's Plays Already in Progress. Alright, thank you DJ Q for bringing us back to segment two of the Jay's Play Show on the Golf News Net Radio Network. I am Jay Flemma. Welcome back everybody. Welcome back to our guest Peter Kessler. Happy to be with you, my friend, as always. Well, now it's time to see if we can get you to win the Trivia Contest Prize, which is a bottle of JB's Best Hot Sauce, okay? We always brag about how great this stuff is, and I do want to tell everybody, and everyone who listens to the show knows, that anybody who advertises on my show, I believe in their product. I found their product somehow, some way. I use it. I love it, and that's why I'm proud to ask them if they'd like to be a sponsor, and uh, you know, I'm happy to have JB's Best as a sponsor. They're fantastic people, and they used to be golf writers. John Burr was uh, John Burr was new uh, life uh, life with them. So here we go. Here's your trivia question. Your category is literature. This famous author's attempt to bring a salmon from Scandinavia through London and into Italy met with laughably bad results. What famous author taught us how to bring a salmon? Well, of course, that was Donald Trump's first book, which I was absolutely <laughs> fascinated by. I have absolutely no idea in the world. You, you always ask me the craziest stuff. I have no idea. You know, I was hoping for my step Scott Fitzgerald question, maybe, you know, would be a good one. But, uh, I guess it was Donald Trump's first book, and it was called Fish Fishing for the Biggest Fish, where they keep the fish in the ocean. You know, I didn't read that one, but I, I've always loved how to travel with a salmon because it is uproariously funny. We were looking for Umberto Echo. Well, I've been looking for him, looking for him for weeks now. Thank God you found him. <laughs> He's on the shelf somewhere between uh, Forster and Douglas. In the literature section, of course. He's also the famous author who wrote one of my very favorite books, The Name of the Rose. And I'm sure a lot of people out there have either read the book or seen the movie with Sean Connery and uh, Christian Slater. It's, it's a terrific story. I highly recommend him. How to travel with family. Too, because Sean's a really good friend of mine, and uh, we never talked about that movie for some reason, really. Finally, we sure talked about the Bond movies. Have you seen uh, The Name of the Rose? No, I've not. Otherwise, I would have talked to Sean about it, and I would have remembered vividly, and I would have known the answer to the trivia question. And it's funny well, because I, I, had the, I had the opportunity to play with him for two weeks, uh, a year apart, seven straight days in a tournament, and we talked about a lot of stuff that had to do with his career, but we somehow missed that one. I'm sorry. What tournament did you play with him, and at which courses? This was at uh, Lyford Key down in the Bahamas, and a very good friend of mine is a very good friend of Sean's, and he invited me down to play in this tournament at Lyford Key, and that's the course that we played. And it's, you know, for an island course, it's a really a nice golf course, a lot of fun to play. And the first time we played, Sean would have been 71, and he was about a 90 shooter at the time. And I was told before I met him, to do 
talk about anything I wanted, but do not bring up James Bond in any way. So when I first got to the clubhouse the first morning, instead of anybody else in my group walking in, Sean walked in and sat down. And at that time, I was still on the Golf Channel. And he talked to me for 10 minutes without stopping about my work on the Golf Channel and said the kinds of things that you would dream that somebody would say, and especially from an actor's point of view, telling me that, you know, he knew certain things that I was doing and what acting techniques I was using and things that I never discussed with anybody ever. And he so flattered me and made me feel so comfortable that uh, the first question I asked him when we stepped off the first tee was about James Bond, and we talked about it for a week straight, and he couldn't have been more open. And when he shared some really good stories with me that you can't repeat, I said to him, I guess you're not going to write a book. And he said, unless I call it the memoir of an amnesiac, no, I'm not writing the book. (laughs) A lot of stuff about the Bond women. How did you fare in the tournament? We actually won low gross the first year. And in my study upstairs, which is mostly Bobby Jones pictures and prints and things on the walls, there's a picture of me and Sean and the other two guys in my group. And uh, it's a great photo. And then the next year, we won low gross again. So I've got two photos of the four guys in the group with Sean, of course. And uh, it's one of my prized possessions along with the dozen 007 balls he gave me as a parting gift before I left the first year. Oh, that's lovely. Now, let's switch over to another uh, dominant player, another very good friend of yours, uh, possibly the last dominant player that we've seen, because there isn't one right now, and that's Tiger Woods. And the big news is, of course, that he's swinging driver, and he says that he's on the road to a comeback. What can you tell us about uh, the latest news on Tiger? Well, I mean, I like everybody else, I've I watched the driver swing that he posted on Twitter, you know, 50 times, and I watched it in slow motion, and uh, I, I've really taken a good look, and I've had a chat with a few friends of mine who are professionals, and to my, to my eye, it was a lovely golf swing. Now, I don't know how far the golf ball was going. It certainly wasn't going Dustin Johnson uh, to Justin Thomas kind of distance, but it was a really nice move. It didn't look like he was protecting his back. Uh, he was able to get the club back. He made a good full turn. Um, I, th- I thought his finish was pretty good. He didn't bite it off. He did complete his swing, and, um, you know, he hadn't been able to do that for a while, and he wasn't dipping down to the golf ball and lowering his head six inches, as he had been doing for years. And it reminded me very much of, you know, as good a golf swing in terms of where the club was moving through the sky and the way that his rotational and lateral and horizontal forces were were working. And uh, so I was very impressed knowing that he just started to hit driver. And my, my sense was that he was pain-free making those swings and in clinics over the past few weeks. He looked pain-free to me where as recently as when he went to open up a a golf course and they had a 100-yard pitch over water, he hit three of them into the water. He obviously was hurting at that point. So pain-free is a great place right now. 
And then there's lots of information we don't know, the most important one of which is, does he have the desire to put in the, the work effort to try to become a competitive player again? He's going to be 42 in December. You know, if he could have a B.J. Singh-like 40s career and win 20 times in his 40s, that would be the most unbelievable thing ever. I don't know that that's possible, and I don't know if he knows if it's possible, but I think he would take being a competitive player again in in a heartbeat. You know, he knows he's not going to dominate again and win a bunch of majors or anything like that. But if he could be competitive as opposed to trying to make cuts, and he could be in one of the last five groups on Sundays ten times a year, you know, he would he would give hundreds of millions of dollars to be able to do that. You know, he's a great father, but, you know, you can't spend all your time with your kids. And, and they, they, they do go to school, and they do have a mom, and, and they do have a new family as well. And, you you know, you can't just, you know, if you would give me the Shakespeare question about, uh, instead of the Umberto question about, you know, if sport was all you had, then it wouldn't be that much fun. And that sport is something that you combine with work. And so, you know, he, he can't just do a semi-retirement kind of thing. He's either going to play or he's not going to play. And either way, he's going to have plenty of time for his kids. So motivation is a huge factor. And whether or not he can become competitive again in his own mind is the determining factor as to whether or not we'll see him again. But let's remember he's 42. It's a body that's had a lot of surgeries, and you know, that go back more than 20 years at this point. You know, and guys in their 40s who do well usually have more leisurely moves, like Phil Mickelson. You know, it's almost 50 years old, but he's got the same swing he had when he was 25. It's long and it's loose. B.J. Singh was long and it was loose. Sam Snead's swing in his 40s was long and it was loose. And, you know, if Tiger can find that kind of move where he can swing at 80%, and still put the ball far enough out there that he's not hitting three more clubs than the longest hitters in the game, I think he could really have a nice little twilight to his career. Now, you mentioned Vijay Singh's career by comparison. By comparison, how beat up was Vijay's body when he got to 40? Well, not very at all. I mean, uh, Vijay never did, you know, any of the, the, the heavy lifting or changed his body type at all. He was Gary Player-esque in the fact that he got a lot of his exercise just hitting golf balls. I mean, he was the first guy on the range, and he was the last guy on the range. But it was a long swing. It wasn't a fast swing. It wasn't a twitchy muscle swing. And that's the kind of swing that Mickelson has and that Snead had and, and that and that BJ still has today in his early 50s. So it's going to take that kind of a move because the explosiveness of his youth, Tiger in this case, is gone. And BJ and Phil were still able to, and Phil is today, able to move the ball far enough out there off the tee to be able to compete with irons that aren't much longer than the longest hitters in the game. And if Tiger can do that going at 80%, because if you watch Phil, it's not an 80%. Sam Steve was 80%. BJ was 80% of available power. You know, and Nicholas probably was, too, for most of his career. And Jack, you know, which is not a well-known fact, did lots and lots of three-woods off the tees just to put the ball into play and was happy to sacrifice some distance for the accuracy. And Tiger would have to do, that, you know, that kind of thinking and that kind of 
strategic management of a golf course at which he already proved to us that he was Nicholas's equal. He knew how to dissect a golf course. And I walked with him in his final nine-hole tune-up on the Wednesday before the 2000 U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, and it was about 5 o'clock, and I walked with, with Butch, his teacher at the time, and with Steve Williams, his caddy, and me and Sandy Tatum, who just passed away recently, who was one of the great men uh-huh. of golf. Yeah. And he played the back nine, and he held the full eight iron on 15 for a two, and he held the full pitching wedge for a three on 18, and every other ball was 12 or 14 feet from the hole, and he shot 30 on the nine, and he looked at the four of us, and he said, that's the best nine I've ever played at tune up for a golf tournament. And that golf tournament, he won by putting the ball in play, knocking it 10 feet from the hole, sometimes making them, sometimes not. No recoveries, no pitch shots, no things out of the woods. At that time, he was the best driver in the game, and people forget that. He was the longest, straightest driver in the game when he was playing his best golf. And he holed a lot of putts. It was shocking what he did that year at Pebble. A 15-shot victory. And an 8-shot victory at the Open Championship. Back-to-back, possibly the most dominant performances, not only in the modern era, but possibly of any era, going all the way back. Oh, I, I... I, I would I would certainly say that's true. I mean, you know, he 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 escaped every bunker on the old course in 2000, which is which is pretty heady stuff. And uh, and and he wasn't making all kinds of bombs at Pebble. He just was able to put the ball in play longer and straighter than anybody else with a ball that nobody else had. He had, also had the advantage of a of a hot golf ball that pretty much nobody else in the field had until later that year. And so he was already the longest, and he was already the straightest. So when you're the longest, straightest driver and you're the best putter and you don't have a lot of long shots into the par four holes, you're going to be the champion. And that's why he not only won the four majors in a row, but in the middle of that, before he won the Masters in 2001 to complete the Tiger Slam, he also won the Players' Championship. So he had the five most important titles, trophies on his desk all at the same time, and I saw them. No one has ever done that. One last question before we let you go. Why do you think there is no dominant player right now? Well, because, you know, obviously the hardest thing to do in golf is to win, right? That's that's the toughest thing is to beat the other 155 players in the field. The, the, the thing closest to it in difficulty and perhaps just as difficult is to consistently be in the hunt. Now, you look at Phil Mickelson's career. His whole career has been made out of two or three good weeks a year. He's never been player of the year. He's never been money leader. He's never had the Barden stroke average. He's never won the most golf tournaments. He's never won any of the season-ending awards ever in his entire career because his whole career was based on two or three good weeks a year, literally. Tiger Woods you know, made 142 straight cuts at one point and was always in contention in the 16 to 20 times that he played. Jack Nicklaus was always in contention. In the 1970s, Jack Nicklaus played in all 40 majors, 10 years times four majors, 40 majors. And he won eight, that's 20%. He came in second eight times, that's another 20%. So 40% of the time he was either first or second 
and I think he was top 10, 35 out of the 40 championships. And that's what you call consistency. And that's how you're able to close tournaments is by being in a position to do so. So the hard. And now you see where I was coming from when I said for your average tour player who gets in contention four times to come away with one victory is actually pretty good. Okay. When Jack can only convert at a 20% ratio or 40% ratio when he's in contention, uh, you know, it, that's how difficult it is to win these tournaments. Oh yes. 25% of uh, being in contention on a Sunday and winning is actually an unheard of number except for one person, which was Tiger Woods who basically won 25% of the majors and the tournaments that he played in. Jack Nicklaus won about 12.5% of the tournaments and the majors that he played in. And so, you know, closing one out of four is a huge deal on some days. You know, if you one out of ten is really good, you let alone one out of four. But the reason why, therefore, that nobody is dominant now is twofold. One, nobody's consistent enough week to week to always be in contention. You know, Jordan Spieth's missed almost 20 cuts so far in his career. Tiger had missed five through 2009. Five. And, and Jordan Spieth, who's only 23 or four, has almost has missed almost 20. So the consistency factor from week to week isn't there for anyone, which is why there's a rotating group of golfers at the top. And the other reason why that rotation takes place is because the equipment has become a big equalizer so that there's no one person who can now overpower the golf course and overpower all of the other players like Nicholas did and like Tiger did because so many guys hit it so far and so straight. So separating yourself because of the equipment is difficult, but the consistency is the really tough thing because so few players over the course of their career have been incredibly consistent and in contention all the time. And that's why we go back to the last two guys who did it, Tiger Woods and Jack Nicklaus, and marvel at what they did. That's how you win 18 and 14 majors, respectively. Peter, tell us where everyone can read your writing and where everyone can listen to your broadcast. Well, funny enough, I'm writing a book right now, and uh, and I'm probably a third of the way through it, and it mostly consists of the fact that I, I, I interviewed every great player of the last century, I interviewed every great teacher of the last century. And so, you know, I played 75 rounds of golf with Tommy Bolt, so I've got lots of Tommy Bolt stuff in there, and I spent incredible amounts of time with Byron Nelson, and I spent a lot, you know, including him watching my swing on the driving range, and so I got to know a lot of these guys really well, including Tiger, and, you know, and I've got a lot of really great stories, and so I'm putting those down, and I had started a podcast, which you can listen to on my website, peterkessler.com, where there's just seven episodes, but I haven't recorded one for a while because those are Paul Harvey-like five- and seven-minute storytellings, and I'm trying to save those stories now for the book, so... I may switch over the podcast's uh, flavor to commenting on what's going on in golf and in current events and just haven't made that switch over yet. And I'm also working uh, with some people who might be able to put me on camera again, uh, which will hopefully in the next few weeks either happen or not happen. I've had many people come to me over the last five or six years and say, would you like to do TV again? And, of course, I say yes. 
and then they either don't have the money or they don't get the distribution or a TV channel. Always something goes wrong. And this time I may actually be working with the right people who have both distribution and the ability to get ad dollars. And those are the two things that you need to be on camera now. And uh, so if, if these guys are true to their form of the last five or ten years of being able to do that successfully, distribute programming and, and get it paid for, then I've got a shot at doing some of the things that I used to do, uh, which I would dearly love to do. So I'm in a little bit of a state of flux, and uh, but it's a happy state right now because things seem to be moving forward a little bit on the book, and they're moving forward a little bit about appearing on camera. So uh, and I'm, and my scoring averages come down a little bit, even though I'm still terrible. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm happy to say that. that I'm joining you with that too, okay? I've been taking lessons with Bernie Hersig, and they've been paying off. What are you shooting now? Well, I'll tell you, okay, before I went to go see Bernie at the yeah. end of May, I was shooting a hundred. I was awful. I was terrible. I couldn't get out of my own. I put my hat in my hand and I said, I'm ready to listen. And since I started working with Bernie, I came in second in the Writers' Championship at Forest Gate with a 91 gross, which is a remarkable uh, round for me there on that difficult golf course, and I'm four and zero oh in singles matches in various. Wow, so it's paid off. Down. Well, it's well, practice. You know, it's committing to 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 studying and learning and taking lessons and going out and hitting balls. Okay, that's what I didn't do, Peter. I never used to go out and hit a bucket, but now I forced myself to go out and hit a bucket. You know, and work on the things that he had me work on and believe in the process, and it paid dividends. I once asked Sam Sneed on a practice range when nobody used to go to tournaments before Tiger came on the scene, and I was alone with Sam Sneed for four nights in a row in the LA, at the LA Open in 1974 where he finished second to Dave Stockton, and he was 62 years old at the time, and... For one of the sessions, he only hit his pitching wedge. And I said, why are you only hitting pitching wedge? And he said, because that's the club that's most important in learning how to groove your golf swing, in learning not to be too fast, in learning to be accurate. And he said, and I use my pitching wedge everywhere unless I'm absolutely forced to use my sand wedge. I'm going to hit a pitching wedge, including from 80 yards when I was in my prime, and Tommy Bolt told me the same thing. And I'm convinced at this point for a recreational player who's, say, over 55, that if you work on your game inside of 30 yards and hit and hit wedges and a six iron and a driver on the practice tee um, and then play as many holes as you can, playing holes is the way that you get your score down. You learn to get it up and down from 30 yards. A guy who shoots 90, I, I have statistically, I would bet that a 90 shooter has a 30-yard pitch on almost every single hole of an entire round of golf, 30 yards or less on every hole unless he's hit a green or two, which is about as many as a 90 shooter hits, just a couple of greens around. So if you can be good from 30 yards and you can leave yourself lots of five and seven footers and 30 yards, the sand wedge then becomes your most important club and the putter. But that's where you save strokes when you've lost distance and you're hitting 
shots into greens with longer clubs, and it's hard to hit greens as you get older. And therefore, you know, if you just practice inside of 30 yards and pitching wedge on the practice tee and just a few drivers and a few six irons and, you know, how many times, you know, and and that's it, that's how, your, that's how your score comes down. But I'm convinced that playing holes and hitting 30-yard shots on the practice range from 15 to 30 yards, that's how your score comes down because you've got a 30-yarder every hole. Everybody, we'll be back with segments three and four in just a couple minutes. You're listening to Jay's Plays on the Golf News Net Radio Network. We're at the end of another great Jay's Plays show, but thank you all so much for joining in. It's no fun doing this to an empty room, but it sure is fun doing it for all of you guys, so thanks so much. I want to thank Fish for kindly letting me use their great music as a theme song for the show. Thanks, guys. I want to thank CyberGolf and Golf News Network, cybergolf.com, backslash writers corner, including me and all the other fine writers, and thegolfnewsnet.com, backslash radio. Take us home, DJQ. Tune in next time for another great Jays Play show on the Golf News Net Radio Network. Thanks, guys. Catch y'all next time.